Hey everyone, David Dorsivi here and welcome back to season two of Ashes Ashes. We've got a lot of great stuff coming up, but before we started, we wanted to do just a quick bit. What do I call this? House cleaning? Um, administration. Uh, uh, what's the word? Logistics, administration. Yeah, yeah. Okay. A quick bit of administration and logistics. And those are both things that you all know that we enjoy very much here at Ashes Ashes. Yeah, David, that's right. We've got some new things on the horizon. First, we've decided to roll out a Patreon account. This is something all of you have been begging us for, demanding of us, and we we finally decided... Literally sending emails saying, how can I send y'all money? Well, now you can. Right. It took a lot of work. Um, these are the type of things that we labor through to deliver for you, our most esteemed listener. And where can they find this account, David? Where can we learn more? That's right. We have a link on our website that says donate. You can click that at ashesashes.org. Or you can go directly to Patreon itself at patreon.com slash ashesashescast. This is the only time we'll mention this Patreon in the beginning of one of our episodes. Uh, Don't worry, we'll jump straight into stuff in the future. Uh, But you can find this there. We've got a little video and an explanation of what we're doing with all the funds in the show. Some different donation levels where we do everything from a few dollars worth of work to maybe sending you uh, occasional gifts, stickers and buttons and things. All sorts of fun stuff. You should check it out. we got some swag and uh, you can see our lovely faces in the real world in that video that I mentioned. So that's there if you'd like to support us or you can just keep listening. That's the best way to support us. And as always, share this podcast with a friend, a family member. Talk about these topics most of all because... That's the ultimate reason why we want to get these ideas out there so that we can have these conversations and build a better world. But without further ado, David, should we get started? I think it's time to jump right back in, Daniel. I'm David Torsivia. I'm Daniel Forkner. And this is Ashes, Ashes, a show about systemic issues, cracks in civilization, collapse of the environment, and if we're unlucky, the end of the world. But if we learn from all of this, maybe we can stop that. The world might be broken, but it doesn't have to be. David, it's time for another installment in our Privacy and Surveillance series. We have, of course, done episodes in the past on government surveillance, corporate surveillance in our everyday lives, even the more specific topics like Facebook. And it's time once again to explore these issues, talk about what's new, and introduce some new concepts into this arena. That's right, Daniel. And of course, the simple answer of why we're doing all of this privacy series is the fact that we are being surveilled constantly in every area of our life. And this is just increasing as time goes on. The reach of this panopticon that aspires to view every part of our life, track it, catalog it, and make it available for others to look at, monitor, analyze, and profit off of is getting ever larger, more powerful in its quest to take over our world. But what enables this process? What is the technology that does this? And beyond that, why are we allowing this to happen in the first place? What is the human component in this equation? These are all questions that we'll be asking and answering, hopefully, throughout this episode today. I think we should start with just a few of the technologies that we interact with every day and throughout our lives. And some of these we haven't touched on in the past. And one of the first ones I want to bring up is Interpol's new voice recognition database. Interpol, of course, is the 
International Criminal Police Organization. So this is obviously an international institution. And earlier this year, they completed a four-year project to unveil a global database. And this is going to be used to store the voice patterns of citizens from countries all over the world, which local authorities will then use to keep tabs on foreigners and their own citizens alike. Uh, The company that led the development of the technology is also known for selling intrusive surveillance tech to authoritarian governments. And this is one of the concerns with a database such as this. Typically, you know, as we've talked about, when it comes to weapons that are sold to foreign governments, we would like to keep companies and local authorities to a standard that doesn't violate the rights of people, that doesn't aid the malicious intent of authoritarian governments. But what this database creates is a way for agencies all over the world to upload biometric data on their own citizens or on people that have come through their border. And then this international organization, which then disperses access to this large data set of very personal information on people, this international organization has no way of verifying that the way that information was collected was done so in a ethical or reasonable manner. I mean, just like here in the United States, David, we require a police officer or agency to have a warrant before they violate our privacy to gain some kind of information. Well, such an international database like this makes that very difficult to do. And this is, of course, a great example of how the normalization of surveillance tech, and especially tech that transcends national borders, has the potential to undermine local efforts of privacy and the regulation of people's personal data. If you're an American or Canadian or you're a European citizen, maybe you're in a place where it wouldn't be possible for local authorities to just mass harvest biometric data and then store that in a database. Those regulations are potentially circumvented by an international database like this because when you find yourself in another country as a tourist, maybe that's where your voice and other biometric data is harvested, uploaded to this database, and then when you go home, that data is available to those local officials that otherwise would not have been able to get it, and it can be used to identify you, track you, or whatever other purpose that surveillance usually serves. But Daniel, it doesn't just end at voices. Amazon has been in the news recently for their face recognition technology, and the fact that they're trying to sell this off to the government, to police organizations, and even organizations like ICE. This has led to many Amazon engineers trying to sign documents saying that they are not interested in participating in this process, but the development of this technology has continued and the deployment is becoming wider all the time. In fact, the military application of this face recognition technology, as well as Amazon's general cloud technology, is one of the major reasons that Amazon recently decided to open a headquarters to not just New York, but also in Northern Virginia where they have close access to the Department of Defense and other intelligence communities. This facial recognition technology, even though it doesn't work that well at all, is prone to problems and misidentifications, they are still shopping it around to everyone they can, and this is a large portion of why these military departments, these intelligence departments, are interested in being close to Amazon as the arbiter and controller of this new surveillance tech. And while that's a great example of how mass surveillance usually will always feature the marriage of government agencies with private corporations, we also see a lot of tracking and invasions of privacy on the purely corporate side. Some 22 million Americans 
suffer from sleep apnea. It's a really debilitating condition that requires a person to rely on a breathing machine just to get a decent night of rest. But recently, patients have been shocked to realize that these machines are not just sending data on their sleep patterns to their doctors, but to the suppliers of these machines and their health insurer as well. And as we will see, when this type of data is available to so many different companies, it can lead to a more difficult life for all of us. Well, that's the American dystopia there, Daniel, where corporations and the government come together to control every aspect of our life. Over in China, the government has decided to take this role up to itself, though American tech companies and other Chinese tech companies are happy to help in the process. And most recently, we saw this with the activation of the social credit system for the very first time. Already millions of people are being denied access to flights and trains because of this surveillance that is currently ongoing. We discussed the social credit system in episode nine, Nothing Left to Hide. And it is, of course, a system in which every single aspect of a citizen's life has an impact on their social score. What you buy at the supermarket impacts your score. Who you date, who your friends and family are, how fast you drive, how much money you make, all of this adds up to a score that is then used to deny or grant you loans on a house or access to rental cars or a whole host of financial and other services. There are cameras that use face recognition to identify individuals who jaywalk and then display their face and name in big letters on billboards in order to shame them. And under this system, investigative journalists have been labeled as dishonest for reporting government corruption, and as a result, they have been banned from all travel. The nature of this technology, however, requires us to avoid making the mistake that for many people is so easy to do. That is saying, well, that's terrible for them in China. Good thing that's not us over here in our country. But as we see artificial intelligence and surveillance technology that is tested and honed in one place, can easily be sold and implemented somewhere else. Freedom House reported this year that internet freedom around the globe has fallen for the eighth consecutive year. A big engine behind this trend is China's efforts to export its models of digital authoritarianism around the globe. According to the annual report, China has conducted meetings with at least 36 countries in order to encourage broader surveillance and tighter internet control. 35 countries have made steps in that direction already. In addition, Reuters has reported on more concrete ways that China is directly exporting this surveillance technology. The Chinese state telecommunications company, ZTE, has been helping the Venezuelan government build ID cards for citizens that are linked to voting records, personal behavior details, and other personal information modeled similar to the mainland's social credit system. Other Chinese companies are helping Zimbabwe and Malaysia build facial recognition programs, and in Egypt, Chinese firms are assisting in the construction of a new capital city, which will be built with surveillance infrastructure from the ground up. Surveillance and the technology that powers it is an enormous industry, and that industry wants to do anything it can to grow. And in fact, we can draw a lot of parallels between what China is doing with its social credit system and the very surveillance apparatus that we have here in the United States. There are so many structural similarities between the two, and really the only difference are the terms we use to describe them. As Edward Hasbrook writes on papersplease.com, the United States already has a social credit system in place, just by another name. It's called risk assessment. Just like China, the U.S. also will use surveillance on individuals to deny travel and financial transactions. 
Just like in China, the U.S. requires a government ID for a wide range of activities and purchases bulk data from commercial partners in order to track individual movement, travel, and financial transactions. And so, the surveillance differences between the U.S. and China are really mostly just differences of scale. We don't have yet、uh, facial tracking videos that automatically put jaywalkers up on billboards. But this scale is trending towards expansion. And David, actually, just this week, I was in the city center of Atlanta, and I was visiting somebody in one of these Class A office buildings, which I haven't been in in a while. And it really blew my mind the amount of surveillance and control that was going on in this private office building. So I walked in, and just to get to the elevators, I have to go to a visitor desk. Okay. Mm-hmm. The person working at the desk asks me where I'm going. I tell them I'm going to, you know, Suite Two Thousand or whatever, and she says, "Well, let me see your ID." So I hand her my government issued ID, which is what she's asking for, and she takes that and she puts it into a computer. The computer then pulls up all my information, my picture, my name, all of this, and then she uses that to print out a sticker with my face on it. Hands me back my government ID and says. Okay, walk over there. I'll open the gate for you because the elevators are blocked by a gate. And then she opens the elevator for me, and I can go up. And what really struck me about this is that it's exactly like the Chinese system, where in order to implement such a social credit system, you have to track people's movements everywhere they go. You need to have as many data points on not just where they are, but what they're doing. And that's exactly what was going on in this office building, right? Now I'm in a database somewhere that says on this such and such date at this time I was at this address I was going to this location conducting this type of business. There's no telling what you can glean from that and how you can use that. That's a great example of the practical ways that the surveillance can find its way inserted into every single part of our life. And many times we won't have a choice of opting out of this pervasive surveillance. For example, in the Atlanta airport. Later on this year, we're going to see that facial recognition at certain locations in the international terminals will be required in order to travel out of the country or into it. This is not the first airport in the U.S. to do this. In fact, I think it's like the 15th, maybe even the 20th at this point. But this technology is being deployed everywhere, and you are increasingly not giving the option of opting out. And sometimes these systems play out in a very comical way, David. Yeah, that's right, Daniel.、Uh, there's a program、uh, in the EU.、Uh, it's the name. I I can't believe this is like a real thing and not a horrible Saturday Night Live skit. But it's called I Border Control. I like like an iPhone. Yeah, I like iPod. And then the control is T R E L, so you know it's techie. <laughs> I Border Control. It sounds like a fun like scamware program that you download. But it's being tested right now in Hungary, Latvia, and Greece. And so, if you want to visit these countries, what you have to do is you have to go up to this computer, this eye border control device. When you get to like the border control, yeah, exactly. And this this computer gives you a lie detector test. Okay, and it asks you questions like, "Do you have anything bad in your suitcase?" No. Are you sure you don't? Oh no, you got me. The whole time, it's like using machine learning and all sorts of other buzzwords to like read the micro expressions in your facial features to, to determine if you're lying or not. Not to mention, that first off, that no technology is at this point even close to being able to detect lies.、Uh, polygraphs, of course, incapable of doing this. Micro expressions not being capable of doing this.、Uh, but being able to capture really well if you're nervous, which is often the case in border travels when you're stressed and you're trying to get a new country. Now you're being interrogated. By a robot in front of you instead of a human being, 
And if you fail this test, which lots of people are going to, because on the, the literature for the device, it has something like an 80% accuracy, or, or even if it's just a 90% accuracy, means that one out of 10 or one out of every five people is going to fail this test. Then you're going to be pulled aside and interviewed by an actual agent, uh, maybe cavity searched. I don't know. But this is such a terrible idea for technology that doesn't even work in the first place. Uh, but somebody's throwing money at this problem that doesn't exist at all. You mentioned uh, like on the literature, it says 80% accuracy, but that's based on actors, right? They test the machine on actors who are told to go up and lie to this thing, but the, <laughs> which kind of totally breaks down when you consider the whole premise is that it's looking for very minute micro expressions on a person's face that is supposedly going to betray their hidden emotions. But a person who is actually lying and very nervous about going through border control security is going to act much differently from an actor who's just playing a part and pretend lying to this machine, right? So, I mean, the whole thing is ridiculous, but I just think the idea of some artificial computer with like a face on the screen saying, what's in your bag? is just well, if, completely ridiculous. For me, what's so funny is imagining that scene in, uh, in Blade Runner where they're interviewing the replicant to see if he's human or not by asking it these, these simple ethical tests. And somehow, instead of like learning from this and saying, this is a terrible future that we shouldn't have to create, we've been like, oh, you know what? That's a good idea. But let's flip it and make a robot interviewing a person and see if they lie. That's a great idea. Uh, let's package this up, put it in a white box, call it I border control, ship it off for however much money to these airports all around the world to manage their already porous borders, which is something that we've talked about extensively on this show. And done. That is the surveillance capitalism that we live in at the moment. And as silly as iBorder Control is, what's not silly is this general environment of increased surveillance and control. So we have governments pursuing data on our every movement. We have companies doing the same. And the lines between these two realms often interact, they overlap, they compete and partner with each other. All adding to this environment where it's becoming harder and harder to have a truly private life. In fact, this is a truly unique time in the history of human civilization. The Children's Commissioner in the UK recently released a long report in which she and her team described the massive amounts of data being compiled on children, the implications of this, and their recommendations. Now, according to the Commissioner, at no point in human history before now has a person been subjected to such a wide-ranging surveillance machine from the day they are born. She does recommend three broad efforts to stem this negative trend. Number one, require companies to inform children of the data that is harvested from the products <laughs> and services they use. Yeah, like that's the, like an eight-year-old is really going to understand the, the uh, magnitude of, of that explanation. But continue. Hey, kids, we're going to remember your name. Is that OK? Click yes if you want to play cookie clicker or whatever. Yeah, there's like some puppy that descends down and it's like, woof, woof. I'm a puppy here to collect your data. Click yes to wag my tail. And if you click no, I'm going to starve. But that's okay. <laughs> uh, the second recommendation they make is to educate children in schools and at home on how this data is being acquired and how they can protect themselves. Again, I mean, putting the responsibility on the children. But um, their third recommendation is to put stronger regulations in place to prevent data abuse by companies. And maybe these are good recommendations, maybe not. But it's worth going over just a few of the ways in which these children are being exposed to this giant surveillance panopticon. So in the UK, 80% of schools use a school management software platform called Capita Simp. 
Through this, children's personal data is integrated with school services, such as automated text messages to parents, but it even goes as far as collecting the biometric data on children like their fingerprints to help do such mundane things as speed up lunch lines. This report also discusses the ways in which children are exposed to surveillance in their own home. And as we discussed in episode three, Permanent Record, toys for children are being designed and sold by intelligence companies so that data on their behavior can be gathered. And we also discussed how even well-meaning toy companies that offer interactive wireless connected toys offer insecure products that are really easy to hack and retrieve voice recordings of children, personal data on their addresses, and sometimes even video recordings of children. All kinds of creepy things. But in addition, David, children are exposed to smart home products like Amazon and Google's helpers, which keep a database of every single audio command that is spoken to them, as well as keeping a transcript in their databases. There's a whole host of new gadgets that we're putting into our homes that expose children to data collection. And as we've mentioned even in previous episodes, sometimes we merge all this technology together. In China, some students are subjected to a camera at the front of the class that watches the facial activities of the students in class to see if they're paying attention, if they're happy, if they're smiling as much as they should be during a lesson. And if they aren't, they automatically get their grade docked, they get notes added to their file. And this means that we are creating a class of people who are used to constantly being watched and performing for cameras every single moment of their lives. It doesn't take a psychologist to realize how this could be harmful for the development of children. Speaking of education, David, and just the general technology that is available to kids, there are countless apps which are designed for children and they reap valuable personal information and behavior data. There's a tutoring app called Class Dojo, and it shares data with over 30 organizations related to the behavior of kids on this education app. And considering how competitive education can be, I think there are enormous implications for something like this, where a private company has information on your child's learning patterns and their skill levels when it comes to education. We can very clearly envision a dystopian future in which a college does not merely judge a student's application based on high school scores and some entrance test, but an entire learning profile that has been compiled, packaged, and analyzed from 15 years of data on your child from various education platforms, maybe even pulling data from that Capita Sim software that tracks children throughout their school years. And then maybe this profile is then sold to colleges as a way to speed up the admissions process. And of course, we have artificial intelligence-aided algorithms that can help sort all the children based on their abilities and automatically rank them. I mean, that's a future we could imagine given all this data harvesting going on. But of course, the big one is social media. By the time the average child turns just 13, according to the Children's Commissioner, there will be over 1,300 photos and videos of them on the internet from parents who have shared them on their own social media. And by the time a youth turns 18, they will have posted to social media a total of 70,000 times. As we discussed in that same privacy episode, this has enormous financial implications on all things. For example, insurance companies of every stripe and color are champing at the bit to buy data like this so they can judge everything from a person's mental health to their driving ability to their physical health to their very propensity to spend money in the first place. Every insight about your life can be used against you by insurance companies to deny you coverage for something. 
There are similar incentives from banks, from credit companies, and other financial institutions that can use data about you to deny loans or charge more for those very same loans and even downgrade your credit rating so that when you go to lease an apartment, you either denied or charged much more. Nothing good can come from this massive data being compiled on every single facet of our lives, and no one is subjected to more of this data extraction and manipulation than the children in today's society. You know what's interesting, David? I read an article recently about how this exposure to technology and surveillance in general is creating inequality in society. And you know, when computers and iPads and all these things started coming out in a more mobile format, we saw this trend where a lot of wealthy parents were willing to pay a lot more to get their children into schools that had more technology integration so that they could assuage their fears of their children being left behind in an increasingly technological world. And so there was discussions about how this is going to drive even further wedges into inequality within our society where poorer children have less access to this technology. But we've seen the tables completely flip where wealthy parents, especially the Silicon Valley types that are creating this technology in the first place, they've woken up to the harmful effects of it. And now they are paying arm and a leg to get their children into private schools where technology is banned. (laughs) No cell phones allowed, no computers. You're only allowed to take notes on pen and paper. Because now that we're seeing the negative effects of this technology, the social cooling impacts of constantly being surveilled, now these wealthy parents are realizing that their children are going to be left behind if they're trapped in this soul-sucking technology surveillance, social media addiction vortex. And now we have another concern where (laughs) there's going to be social inequality, but from the other direction. But let's just hit one more technology that's entering all of our lives. And when it comes to surveillance, the image that most readily comes to mind is that of the security camera. That's right, Daniel. And these are everywhere. I mean, what is more of an iconic image of the surveillance state of a post somewhere with 20 cameras sticking off of in all sorts of directions, filming everything we do? But increasingly, these cameras are beginning to pop up in places that you do not expect them. Both the U.S. Drug Enforcement Agency and ICE have purchased and installed concealed video cameras in streetlights in undisclosed locations throughout the country. And just last month, the DEA issued an opportunity to go in business with a company that can provide them with a large number of concealed surveillance technology. I think they're trying to employ a lot more sophisticated technology than some of the other cameras they have used, like concealed cameras and traffic barrels that are actually pretty obvious. I mean, these are the types of things they used before, but looks like they're stepping up their game. Also, it was just revealed that New York Police Department has a wide-ranging facial surveillance program that they gave complete access to IBM to in order to train their facial recognition data. And while there are a large number of NYPD cameras around the city, they're very visible, you can see them, there are an increasing number of cameras hidden in every single part of our day-to-day sidewalks that most people walk by without even realizing they exist. So if you've ever been to New York, we have these uh, new kiosks that they built all across the city. Uh, they look like giant black obelisks uh, akin to 2001, a space odyssey. But these things, they're called Link NYC. They have a fast free internet, of course, that surveils you, uh, tracks the movement of Wi-Fi and Bluetooth devices throughout the city so that we have a dynamic map of where you're moving around in the city. All this is reported to various advertising agencies, as well as the New York government, which includes the NYPD. But also on either side of this 
giant kiosk, there's a large colored screen for displaying ads and information. But right above this, uh, maybe seven or eight feet off the ground, there is a camera hidden in this black glass. You don't even notice it unless you walk up and look closely at it. Um, and if you go to the Link NYC website, you can see that this camera is actually, in fact, used when you read the privacy policy for this facial recognition technology. And that means that NYPD, these advertising companies, they all have access to a network of hidden facial surveillance cameras throughout all the sidewalks of New York. And you're going to start seeing this increasingly in every city you go to. If they're not in something visible like this very obvious Wi-Fi platform that is built to advertise the city, uh, you're going to see it built into things that are sneakier, like these light pole installations, where there's this understanding that people don't want to feel surveilled. They don't want to see these cameras in their faces. But that doesn't get rid of the desire these institutions have for watching everything that we do, which is something that we'll address later on in this episode. And of course, one of the major concerns as expressed by attorneys at the ACLU recently is that many local police and other authorities have the jurisdiction to employ these concealed cameras in mass without notifying the public that is giving them the resources or the money in order to do this. So I know you keep saying we're going to see these cameras, David, but in reality, we're not going to see them, but they will be there. That's a joke. I know. It just wasn't funny. <laughs> But of course, David, what do cameras lead to? It's not just the surveillance that we're concerned with. It's the integration of facial recognition. The government of Singapore has recently requested proposals from companies to contract for their project that they are calling Lamp Post as a platform. And through this project, Singapore hopes to outfit most to all of its lampposts with smart technology, which will include cameras. And some of the companies that are bidding to help out on this project are offering to install cameras with back-end facial recognition technology. The technology would not just recognize faces, but could analyze crowds and do advanced human attribution to identify what people are wearing, what activities they are engaged in, and much more. Now, the country does claim it intends to honor the privacy of individuals, but I doubt their definition of honoring privacy is the same as you and me, Dave. <laughs> Something would make me agree with that. And for those of you who say, well, this is just Singapore, this is just China, it's not coming home. Well, Los Angeles is one of the major purchasers of these new smart light posts in order to prepare for their Olympic bid. So all of you out on the West Coast, it's not just us New Yorkers that have this increasing level of surveillance all around us. So David, what should we make of all this technology, though? It's a great time to invest in camera companies. <laughs> but I mean, how do we wrap our heads around all this surveillance tech, what does it mean? Well, Daniel, I think what you need to pull out of this episode at this point is really the core idea that we're trying to get across. And that's this soft creep of surveillance that is slowly being rolled out across every aspect of our life for a variety of claimed reasons, whether they're convenience uh, in terms of uh, social media apps that we create, whether it's social currency, whether it's education like we see in classrooms, or whether it's something nebulous as safety, like organizations like the police, the DEA, ICE, used in order to deploy these very visible and powerful surveillance networks. But really what we're doing in all of this is laying the groundwork of a new net. We're sort of at an interesting time right now in law and order and the judicial system. We're seeing the end of a decades-long war on drugs. This is what has powered the prison industrial complex for the past 30, 40, even 50 years, if you're getting to the very beginnings of this battle. 
And during that time, we've exploited the fact that we can lock up people for very minor drug crimes and turn them into profit-generating mechanisms for police departments, for companies that service these prisons, and then even for private prison companies themselves. But as states increasingly move to legalize these drugs, as states begin to overturn the criminal sentences of some people who are still serving time for drugs that are now legal in some places, as our prisons are slowly losing the very thing that made them so profitable for the past few decades, the question in the prison industrial complex and for police departments and law and order organizations around the country is, what are we going to do to keep our bottom line the same? And this surveillance network that we've begun to build out with the partnership of these private corporations who are just chasing a dollar but have unwittingly enabled this, as well as the explicit deployment of networks designed to catch people, is creating the world's most powerful surveillance platform. That when the political winds turn, when they decide we need to fill these prisons in, all the very minor crimes that all of us commit every day, things that really shouldn't matter, that aren't net harms to our day-to-day -day society, but nonetheless are illegal for some obscure law on the book or some stupid fine that doesn't really make sense in the first place, these will be monetized. And our very existence will be watched, recorded, and turned into profit for these prison systems. And if we mess up too much, this will affect every aspect of our lives, like we see in the social credit systems of China, where people's very ability to travel around the country, much less the world, which is something I think a lot of us take for granted, is being denied because of this panopticon. And here we are, enabling this, even at times asking for it, funding it with our tax dollars, begging for this ability to feel more safe in our homes because we're scared of migrants or people at the borders or drugs or gang members or whatever reason they can find to farm us out at the time and turn our fear into profit. And that's where we're getting into next. The fact that fear and the fear we have for each other and our neighbor and every single person around us has been weaponized. It's what drives our politics today. It's what drives this huge portion of our economy that is designed to exploit this, whether it's fear of missing out in our social media world, or whether it's the fear of the other that pushes our prison system and this huge buildup in surveillance technology outright all around us. That is the core concept of this episode and where we're getting to now. But Daniel, maybe you should kick us off with a little bit of history to explain where this human element of fear and of weaponizing that fear in our communities comes from. Absolutely. And, and before we get into that, there's a couple points you made, which I think was very good, David. First, of course, is the fact that so much of what is defined as crime in our societies relates to the revenue that can be extracted from reporting and persecuting that crime. And I think that's absolutely right, that a huge part of this surveillance machine and apparatus is to make up for lost income from the failing drug war, but also to find innovative and new ways to generate profits. But I think there's also the component that we need surveillance from the perspectives of our governments to control populations that will increasingly become restless in the face of all these problems that we talk about. Climate change is ravishing the world, and so you're going to get an increased number of environmental activists. And that's not good for business. So how can we control those people? We need to keep tabs on them. You mentioned migrants, and we are seeing an explosion of, of migrants all over the world, and we'll continue to see that. And as a result, we're going to see more people coming into borders. We're going to see uh, more people wanting to help these migrants. And again, these types of things can be bad for business. How can we control these people? Financially, people's lives are being ripped apart. People are disenfranchised. All this creates an environment rife 
with political activism. Again, bad for business. So maybe it does ultimately come down to profits at the end of the day. But what you said about fear, I think, is hitting the nail on the head. And I want to ask a hypothetical question, which is, if you're a government that would like to spy on every single citizen, but your people believe in freedom, privacy, liberty, how would you do that without being thrown out of office? Because it's reasonable to assume that such a people would resist that type of policy. And indeed, this is exactly what happens in places like the US when these policies are very overt. In 2002, for example, the American president at that time tried to initiate a program which was called Operation Terrorism Information and Prevention System, or Operation TIPS, through which Americans with jobs that gave them access to people's homes would be recruited to surveil the homes of the people they visited and then report anything suspicious to the government. So that means pizza drivers, cable installers, plumbers, mail carriers, you name it, David, all these people would effectively have been turned into spies for the government under Operation Tips in order to surveil every single one of us. Now, when the public found out about this, there was outrage. Um, enough outrage that this plan failed being implemented. And that's the point I'm trying to make. This plan, this operation was too transparent. If you want to be less transparent about your desire to spy on everyone, you need to get them to experience fear. Fear of someone they don't identify with. And if you can get that fear to outweigh their reservations of being inconvenienced by things like long lines at the airport or the inconvenience associated with some vague sense of privacy violation, then you have the green light to start building surveillance on everyone. And going back to this 2002 Operation Tips plan, I think one of the important reasons why it failed was in large part because people could not stomach the idea of individuals spying on them in their own home, their next door neighbors, their postal workers. But what's interesting is that since that operation has failed, we have multiplied the surveillance infrastructure in the United States tenfold, but we are less outraged because a lot of the surveillance that has been implemented is more abstract and it's harder to visualize. It's a camera on the street corner. It's the websites we visit. It's some company you've never heard of who is quietly compiling every single data point about your life in some server in a warehouse. But perhaps the biggest irony here is that all of the surveillance, regardless of the technology, ultimately is empowered by physical surveillance, by individuals spying on each other, by your next door neighbor spying on you. But it's been so embedded in our culture, we just don't realize it. It's been embedded through a process of fear and conditioning. And the United States actually has a long history of using citizens to spy on each other. And this plays such an important role in our surveillance initiatives today. I mean, a larger role than we would initially think. And so, David, I think it's important to turn this conversation now to concepts of citizen spying, the history of it. And the reason why it's so important is because, as we've been discussing in this episode and other episodes as well, there's so much technology around surveillance. But the surveillance component of all of this is really just one side of a two-sided coin. And that other side is communication. You can compile all the data you want about someone. You can put cameras everywhere. But unless that information is then communicated in some way, it can't be acted on. And when we look at the situation uh, specifically here in the United States, what we find is that the individual plays a really important role in this communication. And it's through this fabric of social spying and reporting that we're all a part of 
It's the water that we swim in, but we don't realize it's there. That's enabling all of this surveillance. It's being driven by fear, creating this culture of paranoia, suspicion, atomization. And so the only way we're going to be able to step out of this and hamstring the abilities of all this technology to do its job, we need to understand the context in which we now live and this spying culture that we are now all a part of. So this is the start of a little bit of a history lesson. And now the concept of citizens spying on each other, well, it probably conjures up the image of some vilified authoritarian state from history class. You know, East Germany or Nazi Germany, perhaps. Or maybe the vilified China system today, in which some neighbors are tasked with spying on and denouncing each other. But in his book, Citizen Spies, Joshua Reeves traces the historical development of using citizens as the eyes and ears of the United States authorities and police. And this history might surprise you. It certainly surprised us. Many years ago, David, specifically about 1,500 years ago, the Anglo-Saxon people organized themselves into small communities of about 100 households. These communities were called the Hundreds. And these households had an elder who would then judge disputes and settle criminal charges, but only about four times each year. So in the meantime, people enforced their community standards themselves. If someone harmed his or her neighbor, the other neighbors would come together and punish the offender. Criminal justice, in other words, was a social responsibility. But then, about a thousand years ago, Vikings sailed to Britain and conquered the Anglo-Saxons. These Normans were outnumbered by their new subjects. So they implemented several reforms and laws to ensure that they could maintain their power and influence over the larger populated Anglo-Saxon communities. And the most important of these reforms in the context of this episode was something called the Franken-Pledge system. Now, the logic behind it is pretty straightforward. It would have been impossible for these Normans to install police or military directly into every single community in order to maintain control. They were just simply outnumbered. They didn't have the resources. So instead, they conscripted the entire population to police themselves. Now, how would they do that? Well, if a person committed a crime, the Franken-Pledge system levied a monetary fine on the entire community in which that crime occurred. If the criminal fled and made it to another village, then both of these communities would now have this debt, this fine hanging over their heads. And only until that criminal was apprehended could this debt be canceled. The system was so effective that it quickly evolved and became entrenched throughout society. In the 1200s, the responsibility for apprehending criminals trickled down to the very individual level. If a person so much as witnessed a crime, they were then required to chase the criminal and shout at the top of their lungs so that others in the community could join in on the chase. And if the witness did not chase the criminal, they themselves could be charged just the same as that criminal himself or herself. And the system worked out beautifully for those in power. On the one hand, it helped enrich the ruling class by associating wrongdoing with monetary fines. This was the first time that a crime actually had a monetary punishment associated with it. And that trickled up to the ruling class. That wealth in turn then helped the rulers consolidate their power And then on the other hand, it also helped prevent uprisings and political assassinations since the local populations themselves, conquered as they were, were still incentivized to punish the dissidents in their midst for fear of the debt they would all have to endure. 
in addition to criminal charges for anyone who so much as witnessed their neighbor committing some wrongdoing. This development in control is significant for so many reasons. Essentially, what this is, is the crowdsourcing of policing. By conscripting the population to not just surveil each other, but to turn each other into the authorities, which is ultimately made possible through the extraction of social relationships. From the book, quote, Once criminal justice ceased to be a local affair, educated between and by neighbors, crime was abstracted from personal or communal experience and reconstituted as an act not against specific citizens, but against the sovereign. This loss of local independence aided the abstraction of criminal justice from its long-standing foundation in communal observation and response, making possible new means for extracting citizen police labor and rechanneling sovereign power through the bodies of its subject. End quote. David, that concept reminds me of an important topic we discussed in episode 28, Debt End, which is that debt came before money, and debt was in many pre-money societies a way for people to hold each other accountable and keep communities stronger because a debt was only possible between people who had a relationship with one another. But the introduction of money allowed that debt between two people to be extracted. Because when you assign a money value to a debt, well, now it can be traded, it can be exchanged, it can be enforced by people who are outside that community, thus eroding that form of social accountability. And so in the same way, this crowdsourced policing extracts a form of social accountability that relies on relationships and community and then turns that into something that is purely civic and no longer relies on those relationships at all beyond the superficial. And that's another significance of this new form of control. It turns social responsibility into a civic one. The crimes that a community became responsible for became less and less related to harm done to the community itself in order to strengthen the community. But more and more, they became crimes against the ruler for the enrichment of the ruler at the expense of the community, and thus weakening it. For example, in the context of the Norman conquest of the Anglo-Saxons, the Anglo-Saxons were now responsible for crimes against their own Norman conquerors, which is a total transformation of their previous relation to crime. That is, when your neighbor wrongs you, your friend, or your family. And this form of crowd policing survived well into the 1800s, even taking shape in the American colonies. The British used a similar system to crowdsource policing in their colonies to prevent revolution and maintain control over the people that they dominated. Americans were responsible as a whole for the crimes of their neighbors. And once again, these crimes were by definition crimes against the monarchy. For example, two months after Patrick Henry's give me liberty or give me death speech, the British labeled him a traitor and put notices in the Virginia papers, quote, charging all persons to oppose him by every means. But the story does not end with the British domination of its American colonies. Our systems for conscripting everyday citizens into surveillance work for the police has only evolved since then. The long history of citizen policing involves not just the employment of everyday citizens to surveil their neighbors, but also to enforce the law by directly capturing criminals or chasing them into the hands of authorities. But as the United States has consolidated power into a larger, centralized state, it gained the ability to professionalize a select number of citizens into official police officers. And that has shifted the way the government views citizen participation in criminal justice. It's still necessary to use us as tools for surveillance. 
but the government no longer wants its people to directly intervene in what they see. Keeping people passive has become a way for the government to consolidate even additional power into a monopoly over legitimate violence. And as we'll illustrate, that's why we see groups like Neighborhood Watch, which is a community policing program endorsed by the police, get full support from the government. Whereas those communities in this country that have had to rely on each other for policing their own communities, but outside of the legitimate support of the government, are labeled terrorists. You know, and a great example of that is the Black Panthers. The Black Panthers, of course, recognized that there were needs within their communities for policing that was not provided by the government in any way. In fact, the government often used police as ways to oppress Black communities, as it continues to do to this day. So the Black Panthers formed their own groups of community policing, which they protected people. They patrolled their neighborhoods. They checked up on their neighbors. They made sure as best as they could to maintain justice in their communities. And as a result, they were labeled terrorists. And so that's going to be a common theme as we go through this concept of citizen surveillance is that when it comes to policing ourselves, although the idea is that we as communities are keeping an eye on each other and we're making sure everything is safe, when we pull back the hood, we see that that process is being controlled. That process is being mediated. It's being defined by some institution that is outside of our community. And as you would expect, that has negative impacts on the health of our communities, despite the veneer of safety and security and cohesion that these programs and initiatives promote. So getting back to the topic of privacy and using citizens as tools for surveillance and invasions of privacy, we first have to understand how this process of spying on each other follows a careful logic where we are trained not to keep tabs on our neighbors generally, but to see crime through a carefully constructed lens that directs our attention to activities that harm the wealth and power of certain people and institutions while ignoring the harm done to everyone else. For instance, let's look, let's look at an example. More wealth is stolen from people every year by employers stealing money from their workers than all types of violent theft combined. So this means bank robberies, burglary, convenience store theft, street muggings, you name it, employers steal far more wealth than all of these at an estimated $50 billion each year. This wage theft is undeniably a crime against society. Yet it's doubtful many people have a clear idea of how to even go about reporting such a crime, let alone uncovering it. But there's not a person in this country who does not know exactly how to report a kid stealing a bag of chips from the local gas station. And we should stop and consider the absurdity of that for just a moment. It's no coincidence that we have been hardwired to perceive certain crimes while ignoring others. And while some people have suggested that this asymmetry is just a result of wage theft being more difficult to witness, in 2012, $933 million was recovered and returned to victims of wage theft. And just that tiny fraction that was uncovered of that estimated $50 billion stolen, even that amount exceeds most forms of violent theft occurring in the United States annually. The fact that we do not know how to monitor and report certain crimes that harm us is not a coincidence. It's a matter of priorities by those who carefully mediate what crimes we are allowed to report. And to understand this mediation, this process of creating a lens through which we see crimes, we can look at how the development of citizen policing parallels the rise of certain technologies like telecommunications which can give us some clues about how this process comes about. So in the 1800s, for example, 
Authorities in America, they realized they could extend their reach into communities more directly by constructing these telegraph call boxes within neighborhoods for the purpose of reporting crimes. They looked like outhouses just randomly throughout neighborhoods. And what they did is they restricted access to these call boxes to only a select group of citizens who, I guess, were respected within the community or who the authorities respected. And these citizens were given keys. They were numbered. And anytime one of these citizens wanted to report a crime, they had to go up to this call box, unlock it. They would then call the police who would then show up and then take the key back so that they would have a record of who called the police. And what's interesting is that these call boxes had pre-selections. If you wanted to call the police, you had to select one of like 11 options. So the police would know what the disturbance is, what the crime is. This is the only way you could call the police by selecting one of these options. Police wagon, thieves, forgers, riot, drunkard, murder, accident, violation of city ordinance, fighting, and fire. <laughs> I, I really love the imagine the, the situation that they're in where somebody is like out in their day and then they see somebody forging something and they're like, oh my God, I have to get to the police, but there's no time. And they like burst into the telegraph box and like, oh, thank God, there's a forging option. And they press that and then the police rush out and stop somebody from forging. I don't know. It's, uh, it's super funny to me for some reason. Sorry. <laughs> Continue. No, no, you're exactly right. And that's what's important about this example is you have two things going on here. First, you have the police defining for a community what a crime is, right? Oh, if you see a thief, that's a crime. But it's also telling in what they omit. So from the book, quote, these technologies have performed a number of mediating functions that have allowed police agencies to recruit ideal informants, surveil and track witnesses, prevent the reporting of low-priority crimes such as sexual assault and other offenses against women, and discourage certain populations from contacting the police, end quote. Yeah. You say, yeah. So what you don't have is the option to report a rape. Mm -hmm. You don't have the option to report that wage theft. You don't have the option to report a whole host of abuses that normally a community under social responsibility would have an interest in correcting. And of course, by discouraging certain populations from contacting the police, the author means only a select group of citizens even had the right at this point to make these calls in the first place. Well, a lot of these concepts, Daniel, have carried through to the technology that we have in place today. While we're not rushing off to telegraph boxes and, and choosing from a pre-selected option of crimes, we are all trained from a very early age to know to grab the phone and dial 911. Or for those of us listening in other countries, whatever your respective emergency number is. I mean, how early are we taught this concept? As soon as we're learning how to stop, drop, and roll to put the fire on us out as a teeny tiny child, we're also learning if something ever bad happens, rush over to the phone and dial that number and people will be sent over to help you. And that's always the, the word there. We're going to come and help you. Even though a lot of the times police are not by far the best way to come into a situation and make it better. A lot of times they end up escalating the situation and making things that could have ended up peacefully or happily end in tragedy. But that's a conversation for another time. But what does this do to our psyche? The idea that no matter where we are, that we can just reach for a phone somewhere and dial 911 and yell out and somebody, allegedly, will come to help us. How does this change the way that we think? This sort of idea that there's always a parent in the other room waiting for us to yell out for help and they'll be rushing over to save the day. This concept gets repeated throughout our society and we're taught over and over what types of crimes to report. 
when it's okay to call the police. And I see lots of situations where someone's like, well, you know, I need help, but I don't want the police to come. So what am I supposed to do? Who am I supposed to call? And there are generic emergency lines, but a lot of people don't realize that. And on the flip side, there are people who abuse these emergency lines in order just to have somebody out there to talk to. This is something that's happening a lot in alienated communities, especially in the elderly, where they're just, there's no one else. And so they call 911 to talk to these operators because they know they'll pick up and answer and say hi. And there is a valuable service in that. But the fact that we've limited that idea only to these emergency numbers is sort of sad in itself. But beyond that, for a lot of people, 911 has sort of turned into like a personal annoyance system. You see something that you don't like. You see people who look out of place. You see something that, oh no, I'm, it's playing into some fear I have. It's a box on the side of the road. I'm going to call 911. And I'm going to rush somebody in here and escalate this process and make this very dramatic call where people are coming in authorized to use deadly force in order to step into this community so I don't have to do it myself because I don't feel qualified or because I don't care enough or because the only response I've ever been taught is just to reach for the phone and call somebody else to do it for me. And this separates us from our communities ourselves because it's teaching us that instead of being personally involved in a situation, and this isn't to say every situation is okay, but for a lot of these things, we should be stepping in and interfering with ourselves because we are part of these communities we interact with. Right. But when our very answer is always to reach for the phone and say, I'm going to go get someone else to do this, and then I'm going to step out. What does that say about how we interact with these communities as a whole? That's absolutely a great point. I mean, if you think about what a community is in the first place, it's, it's relationships, it's interactions with people. And when we outsource those interactions to a professional body, we have these problems. Like we saw with Matt uh, from Nashville, who called in for episode 45, Bill of Health, going through some hard times, feeling suicidal. The only number he knew to call was this professional service, which then outsourced that to the police. Then they arrested him and he went to the hospital where they charged him $3,000. That's what this emphasis on 911 does for us. And you know, I think we have to remember, going back to that history that we outlined about the Norman conquest of the Anglo-Saxons, this community policing is important because it allows our authority institutions to extract revenue, right? The crimes that have been defined for us, like calling the cops on that kid who steals from the gas station, which you brought up, David, that's a way for police authorities and, and the government to directly profit off of that crime by then associating it with a monetary fine, which if you think about our community, that fine is coming out of our community. It's an extraction. So this crime is being used as a tool in order to not just surveil us, but then take resources out of our communities. And this is, you know, again, especially problematic, like the point you're making, which is when we're so conditioned to use this for every single thing in our community. I mean, there was a big story a few years ago about a woman whose next door neighbor, another woman, came at three o'clock in the morning, screaming at her, knocking on her door, saying, please help me. My husband's going to kill me. And so this woman who's sitting in her home, what she does is she calls 911. The 911 operator says, ma'am, don't do anything. Again, reinforcing that monopoly for the state on legitimate violence. The operator says, ma'am, don't do anything. Stay right where you are. So that's exactly what the woman does. Her next door neighbor, her husband comes over, drags her back to the house. The police show up an hour later, knock on that neighbor's door, doesn't hear anything, so leaves. Then they come back six hours later again, and the woman is dead. All because this neighbor that this woman came to for help took the passive approach, said, it's my civic duty to call the police, when in fact, she could have called her other neighbors. I mean, how many people were on her street that could have rallied together, gone over to their neighbor's house and said, what's going on? And solved the problem together. 
and maybe avoided that very tragic event, which, by the way, the police took so long to get there because they were busy at the bars at 3 a.m. when they closed collecting fines and doing the things that get them money, which is, again, what their primary motivations are in this context of extracting value out of communities. And for those of you who are uh, not convinced by the fact that police departments exist largely to collect fines, I at some point broke down the budgets of a lot of rural area uh, municipalities and counties because I was curious just how much of their overall budget is from police fine collection, most of which were traffic fines. Because specifically, I was interested in, in a world where all cars are automated, where there are conceivably no more traffic fines, what will happen to these communities? And what I found is that in most places, city budgets are 5 to 10% made up of fines that police departments collect, which is a huge portion of the budget. So yes, police departments are actively out there funding local government by collecting these fines from communities. In some places, it's much higher than that, especially in communities that are historically uh, more oppressed by, by their police departments, like we see in Ferguson, which led to the riots outside of there. Well, and then that gets us into another topic, which we need to do at some point, David, on just urban design and gentrification and these types of planning initiatives, like the wave of incorporation that we see across the nation where communities incorporate into their own little cities so that they can border their resources that normally would go to an entire county or an entire state and instead keep those resources for themselves, essentially starving other communities of those resources, which then because they're, they're lacking those resources, those communities have to step up their policing in order to do exactly what you just said, extract more traffic tickets, persecute more crime, all so that they can make up for the loss of resources that has been siphoned into the wealthy, gated communities that now incorporate and don't want to share that wealth with the school systems and other community services that really is a part of their community. Well, I, these are all good points, but I feel like we're getting a little bit off topic. And I just want to go back to this idea that we are all a trained nation of snitches at this point. And uh, you see it even in advertising. Like, uh, I'll sit here on the subway or the bus in New York, and I'll see ads that say, basically, if you see something, say something. This phrase all the time, where we are taught every single moment of our day to look around at everyone around us suspiciously. What is this person up to? They look different than me. Oh, what is that bag they're holding? Oh, they've got a weird box. I'm going to call this to the MTA. And this idea that better safe than sorry, that we need to report everything we see that bothers us a little bit, makes us continuously on edge, continuously alert in our communities and prevents these bonds within the community from forming because we're too busy being scared of everyone around us. And this behavior starts young. That's right. We started this episode with how the surveillance technologies are infiltrating the lives of children. And unsurprisingly, the social technologies of surveillance are also shaping the lives of children. So once again, let's look at this trend in the United States. Most people have heard of DARE, drug abuse resistance education that has been employed in a lot of public school systems. And these modern programs, they have historical roots in a wide range of programs that sprouted up in the late 1800s and early 1900s, in which the government sought solutions to what it considered a major problem. Poor, working-class people all over the country had children who, in the eyes of the government, would then form the core of the, quote, dangerous classes, which was perceived to be the major source of crime. And so there were a number of programs aimed at children, which sought to turn these children from the, quote, dangerous classes into upright citizens. The boy police is a great example of this. And <laughs> Wait, did you say the boy police? 
Yes, David. And uh, this was at a time when things were a lot more uh, transparent, right? Maybe today our society couldn't get away with something so direct as the boy police. But yeah, this was one of the early types of programs aimed at deputizing children. We, we, have, we have programs here in New York um, where they have this mascot who's a, like a puppy and a cop, and they call it Paw Patrol. So we haven't actually stepped too far away from boy police, but uh, keep going, keep going. I don't want to interrupt. That's interesting. But, but yeah, these boy police programs, a lot of them formed in the early 1900s, in which police departments broke their cities up into small neighborhood-sized zones, and then they recruited young boys from each zone to spy on their friends, their peers, and their family members. These boys were instructed to keep reports of any wrongdoing as defined by the police, and they were galvanized through competition with each other. So the police rewarded those who had the best neighborhoods. But in addition to the information these boys provided, the mission was to turn future criminals into upstanding citizens in part by getting children to idolize ordinary police officers as heroes. Well, you know, at this point, that idea is so far sold into society at large. I mean, we've talked about this in past, especially in the episode we did focusing on how much forensic science is just totally made up bunk that have convicted who knows how many hundreds of thousands of people wrongly. Episode 24, Suspect Science. Yeah, exactly. But think how much of our media today is devoted to celebrating police and cops and those of us, oh, I just revealed I'm a cop, and those out there who are allegedly solving crimes and making society better, we have a huge hero worship with police officers in this country. And in fact, in a lot of places, police officers are considered a protected class. And that doing anything against a police officer is, in fact, a hate crime. Because we need to only uphold police officers as heroes and not as people who are arguably making a lot of our communities far worse. But I mean, again, even if the police were uh, like a purely good force, I mean, the idea of a hero is someone who stands up to risks, someone who stands up to danger and still does the right thing in the face of some great challenge. And of course, that's why a lot of the framing of police as heroes has to be justified by the idea that their job is super dangerous. But in terms of the dangerous jobs in, let's say, the American economy, police officers are super far down that list. I mean, the most dangerous jobs include roofing, transportation, logging. These are jobs that fuel our economy that is absolutely essential in order to maintain the economic base that we have. But I mean, when's the last time media has portrayed a truck driver as a hero, forced to drive 60, 80 hours a week for little to no pay. When's the last time a logger has been characterized as a hero in modern media? You know, when you think about it, Han Solo is basically just a trucker. And he's the anti-hero. Touche. All right, but let's get back to the boy police, because it's really interesting when you look at the jobs of the boy police, as outlined by one of these boy police programs in New York City in the 1920s. So here's some of the tasks for this program. Uh, Number one, prevent swearing and vulgar language in the public street and public places. Number four, prevent boys from smoking cigarettes or playing crap. Number five, prevent boys from engaging in dangerous or unlawful playing, whatever that means. Number seven, prevent the mixing of ashes, garbage, and paper. We definitely don't want that. Number nine, request persons to keep the sidewalk and areaway in front of their buildings clean and not to throw refuse into the street. Interestingly, number 10, uh, make special effort to perform duties six, seven, eight, nine, which are mostly things about garbage at your own homes. 
See that your parents and relatives do not violate the law and ordinances. So right here, they're telling kids to literally snitch on their family, that the uh, authority of the law is more important than whatever familial connections that they have, really breaking down those community bonds at a very early and, and nuclear stage. I mean, these boys were absolutely judged in part by their ability to persuade grown-ups to obey the law. And interestingly, point number 11, the boys were instructed that for the above purposes, do not enter any building under any condition. Which is interesting to me, again, just really driving home to these children just how important it is that they follow the law exactly. Like if you see somebody doing something wrong, it's there in front of you and you know you can stop it right now. It doesn't matter because you're not supposed to enter any building under any condition. And this, this really drives home just like how they want the kids to view this law, that authority is most important component of this, and they are not there to enforce anything, but merely to act as the eyes of this hand of state violence that is out there to issue fines or even take people away if they're repeat offenders or something. No, I think that's a really important point, which is, you know, again, reinforcing this passivity and give the ability to intervene in your own community, not to yourself but outsource that to this professional body, which ultimately wants to extract something from your community. And the boy police were also accompanied by an NYPD program, the COPET program, which was basically the same thing, but it turned young girls into deputies. And this was a way for the police to extend their reach into the homes of families through this child surveillance as these young girls were given more tasks related to surveillance within their own home. They were, for instance, tasked with regulating the health and morality of their parents, their siblings, and the children in their neighborhoods. And I think this is so interesting how these girls were tasked by the police, a professional body, to regulate the morality of their parents. And there's so much that could be said about this. But I think the most important thing is that, you know, the idea of a decentralized effort to carry out community goals and to check up on your neighbors, check up on your family. That's actually a pretty effective way of shaping communities. It's actually a brilliant way to form bonds between people and create and maintain and pursue common goals. But these efforts were not and have not as they have evolved. They're not being carried out by communities themselves. They've been carried out by a police force that sets the terms and then uses this to shape and manipulate communities into behavior that benefits a very narrow set of goals as defined by the state, which is economic productivity, subservience, surveillance and snitching, and also some vague sense of morality. The police are defining for these children what is moral and good. And this is, can be as arbitrary as playing a game, like the boy police who had to stop children playing crap. But David, if a family or some broader community wants to instruct itself on morality and determine if a game is moral or immoral, that's fine. That's good. We should empower communities to make these decisions for themselves. But that's not what this is. This is not democracy at work when communities are policing themselves as per a top-down mediated plan that the communities themselves did not agree to or approve. At that point, it's just coerced participatory policing, not that much different from what the Vikings did to the Anglo-Saxons in, you know, however many years ago. Again, which was something that was motivated by one group literally conquering another. And this is what's really happening here once more. Well, conquering is a perfect analogy, especially considering going back to the motivations for these programs of controlling the, quote, dangerous classes. 
a lot of these efforts have been married to racial fears related to African-Americans, immigrants, and other minorities. So the same children who are being recruited by police to surveil their communities, they've also been instilled with, in many cases, racial prejudices that tends to accompany this police hero worship and these uh, community policing things. Like we saw with George Zimmerman when he stalked Trayvon Martin simply because he was a black kid in a hoodie. But these programs, as they were called, boys police, cop bets, these weren't going to work in the modern day. And so they evolved. The 40s saw a huge surge in efforts to recruit youth police as the war took many men away from their families, leaving a large population of youth unsupervised as their single mothers met the labor demand in factories and offices. But the turning point in this evolution, which really brings us closer to the modern day, is when these programs began to merge with school systems, beginning in the 1980s as part of the war on drugs. Which brings us to D.A.R.E., again, Drug Abuse Resistance Education, which is active in 75% of American schools today, as well as over 43 countries around the world. It's a very significant program that is aimed at youth and, I mean, basically the same thing as the boy police, turning children into little police officers, aligning them with the goals of authorities. And in schools, what this looks like is D.A.R.E. is a program which partners with police. These programs are aimed at children as young as five years old. And the education comes from the fact that children are taught the three R's, not arithmetic, David. (laughs) They're taught to recognize drugs and other suspicious behavior resist by refusing to take part in whatever that suspicious behavior is. And finally, the third R, report that behavior to the police. Children who are active in D.A.R.E. programs cultivate close relationships with police officers so that they will associate officers with friendliness, helpfulness. And so the officer will be the first person they turn to when they see anything they have been taught to recognize as wrong. Through programs like D.A.R.E., authorities attempt to penetrate even deeper into the inner lives of citizens by turning children into weapons of surveillance, mediating what children surveil, what they report, how they report it, and on whom they report on. In Georgia, for example, a nine-year-old dare kid called the cops when he found a small stash of speed hidden in his parents' bedroom. The cops show up, arrested both of his parents, kept his father in jail for three months, and then this distraught child, he said, quote, At school, they told us that if we ever see drugs, call 911 because people who use drugs need help. I thought the police would come get the drugs and tell them that drugs are wrong. They never said they would arrest them. But in court, I heard them tell the judge that I wanted my mom and dad arrested. That's a lie. I did not tell them that. End quote. Indeed, these naive youth often recognize and report without understanding the potentially devastating consequences of their actions. In some cases, they've ended up homeless. I call your example, David, and I raise you another one. This involves the misdirection that occurred in 1990 when a fifth grader was questioned by D.A.R.E. police officers about her parents' drug use. When the girl told them that her parents occasionally smoked pot, the police threatened to arrest her parents if she did not secretly find out and report more about their activities. The police told the girl that her parents might beat her if they found out she was reporting for them And so they instructed her to very secretly draw layouts of their house, get detailed information on how much her parents smoked, and where they kept their weed. Finally, the police raided her home, arrested her parents, and because she had nowhere to go, they sent the girl away to a distant relative. Several years later, a judge condemned the actions of the officers, but not until after this girl had suffered from years of trauma and guilt. So what can we take away from this, Daniel? 
Well, I mean, I think there's a number of things we can take away from this, David. First and foremost is when it comes to surveilling our peers, when it comes to reporting crime, we as individuals ultimately are tools. We are being turned into tools for gathering information about our neighbors, our friends at school, our parents, and others, which authorities can then use to turn into raw data for analysis. Neighborhood Watch is a great example, as those who take part are encouraged to watch their neighbors for signs of suspicious behavior and report everything they see to police, while at the same time, they are encouraged to you know, get to know your neighbors and use your ears and eyes and be nosy all for the purpose of catching suspicious behavior early. And while these initiatives are justified as ways to strengthen communities, in reality, they do the opposite. Quote, watch volunteers and recruits are taught. One of the most important aspects of Neighborhood Watch is getting to know your neighbors. Indeed, neighborhood sociality is reconstructed as a primarily investigative project as neighbors, their habits, and their belongings are reduced to data that must be mastered in order to protect the community. In other words, Neighborhood Watch makes the conditions of community those very rituals of suspicion that do much to undermine any promising possibility for being with others. Neighbors are instead reimagined as information that can be remembered, recorded, compared, and profiled. Information that becomes valuable only to the extent that it informs surveillance strategy or facilitates the determination of suspicious and unsuspicious activities. End quote. There's an idea, David, that we as members of our government are being governed. But what we have to realize is that by being tools through which this government does its surveillance, we actively perform the governing. We are not so much as governed as we are the governors. We're not so much being surveilled as we are the surveillers. And I think this is important to recognize that we're not just being acted on by the police. We're not just being acted on by authorities that wish to extract information from us. We are the tools by which those authorities enforce certain ways of living, certain moralities that have been decided for us, certain behavior that benefits employers while conditioning us away from behaviors that might be unproductive in an economic sense. As overwhelming and as depressing as that idea might be, I think we can find some empowerment through that by recognizing how important we are as these tools, gathering information about our communities. We don't have to do that. We could opt out. And that in itself is a way of resisting this great security and surveillance apparatus. While our communities are reduced to what tidbits of information is useful to a state wishing to surveil and control us, and we have been made into the tools through which that information is gathered, we have also been encouraged to sit back and become passive members of our communities, and are even punished when we try and take that direct action to assist people in need. Here's from a 1977 report summarizing the opinions of various police chiefs on the role a neighborhood watch should play. Quote, only the police can and must dominate and control a neighborhood watch program. Police must emphasize to citizens that their role is to watch and report, not to take action. End quote. These words have been echoed in the actions of the police since they were first written decades ago. These words were written in response to people actually stepping out and taking responsibility in their community, 
People like the Black Panthers who stepped into the streets and said, the police are not here for us. They are not coming to defend us when we ask them to, so we will do that ourselves because we, as members of our community, understand what it means to be within this community. We understand our needs. We understand the people here. We know the people on our block. When we walk down the street, we're not a stranger walking through a foreign place. We're neighbors smiling at each other, recognizing that we are all in this struggle together and we are responsible for helping each other in that process. And this concept of a member of the community being responsible for the community is so foreign to us at this point because of the way we've been ripped out of that very community that once bound us together. Beginning with the way the Normans redefined what it meant to be responsible for the community from making sure your neighbors are held accountable to making sure an entire community is punished as one. Turning us all against each other to watch each other with suspicion. If you see something, say something. Those ideas are still carried through today. And this fear has been deployed as a tool to control us, to make sure that we stay profitable for these systems that need to extract as much value from the times where we step out, to make sure that we stand in line for both reasons of control and these profit motives that we see that motivate the surveillance capitalism that has become so powerful in every single bit of our lives. And this fear, which before had been limited to the effects of the local police department and the way they can step directly into our lives, is now so much more powerful. Multiplied by the hundreds and thousands of security and surveillance devices that we encounter every single day, each and every one of us. No longer are we responsible for our community, but this has been outsourced even further to these devices that are watching all of us as we watch all of each other. And in this process, we've forgotten to look back at ourselves and wonder how we got into this manner of living in the first place. When we have to perform every moment because we know that we are being constantly recorded, watched, and turned against each other. And if we can get back to these ways where we walk through the community and we know our community and we are responsible for community and we are willing to risk ourselves for that community, well, then we can finally start shedding these ideas of surveillance away from us. Because we will not fear our neighbor, but we will have relearned to love our neighbors. And that love is what will bind us together and make sure that our communities stay safe and strong and sustainable and moving forward in the right direction. Instead of being lost in this increasingly fragmented, horrifying world where we live in a miserable emotional existence, even though our physical existence might feel safer, it's that much more miserable. And that's not a world I want to live in anymore. Me neither, David. And so I think that brings us to the final takeaway from all of this, which is that when we live in a world where crime is defined for us by some outside force that's outside of our community, when we all participate in a culture of paranoia and suspicion, reporting and snitching, it all comes at a cost. And that cost is the social responsibility that can actually solve so much of what we perceive as crime from the source. When we spend millions and millions of dollars on programs to turn children into surveillance tools, spying against their friends, spying against their parents, that comes at the direct cost of programs that could be implemented to strengthen communities so that the types of crimes that we are worried about don't even occur in the first place. When the troubled youth of our nation decide to pick up a rifle and take out their pain 
on their friends, at schools. We have a choice of how we can respond to that. We could respond by fueling more fear, fueling more unnecessary security. We could put cameras in schools, facial recognition in schools. We could put metal detectors at the front of every school bus, add to the suspicion we have of each other. Or we could recognize that behind that mental pain is a loss, is a grief that is not being met by the community. And it's not going to be met by increased paranoia. We want people to stop taking their anger out on each other. We could instead emphasize solidarity. We could instead emphasize programs that bring communities together and give people a way to voice their pain, a way to come together and support each other. When we are responsible to call the police when something suspicious is happening in our neighborhood, but we are irresponsible to take any direct action, when we are irresponsible for those in our communities, for those in need, when we are not responsible to provide basic services like compassion and assistance for our neighbors, then we should not be surprised when our communities fall apart. If we don't want to live in a world filled with fear and suspicion, we might have to start shedding some of our fear. We may find that the risk that we perceived was never there in the first place, and that we can start building a better world, one that's perhaps a little bit safer than we imagine. Once again, from the book, quote, We should cultivate direct forms of community solidarity, not vigilant, suspicious ones that involve scouring our communities for petty criminals, a la George Zimmerman, but an openness to and care for our neighbors that would make it unthinkable to sit indoors while they are being murdered right outside. End quote. And ultimately, David, I think that would be a safer world, a world in which we don't have to worry about our neighbors turning the other way just to dial three numbers on a phone when we are suffering. I think a world in which my neighbors take a direct interest in my well-being is a safer world, even if we have a few less cameras as a result. As always, that's a lot to think about, but think about it, we hope you will. You can find out more about any of the topics we talked about today, as well as read a full transcript of this episode on our website at ashesashes.org. A lot of time and research goes into making these episodes possible, and we will never use ads to support this show. So if you like this show, would like us to keep going, want us to keep doing all this research, keep sending rants into your ears, you, our listener, can support us by giving us a review, recommending us to a friend, sharing these ideas and topics with your friends and family, and checking us out on our brand new shiny Patreon account slash Ashes Ashes Cast. You can also send us an email. It's contact at ashesashes.org. And we encourage you to send us your thoughts, positive or negative. We'll read them and we appreciate them. You can also find us on your favorite social media network at Ashes Ashes Cast. Next week, we'll be back with an episode on the wide world of chemicals, pesticides, and our health. We hope you'll tune in. But until then, this is Ashes Ashes. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.